0: For those of you who are uh, joining live stream, the, uh, we put the notes on the live stream page, so make sure that you, you grab those. There are a lot of notes for us to work through this morning, and I'm going to do my best. I'm, I'm going to try not to rush it, and so if we need to pick up on some of these things a little bit later. This is an important piece of, uh, of the puzzle when we're trying to help one another. Uh, to think biblically about life. And so I want to make sure that we, we slow down enough and pay attention to, uh, to exactly what, what we're trying to do. Today we're talking about the importance of biblical discernment, the importance of biblical discernment. And as we talked last time, the last time I was here two weeks ago, we, we talked about data gathering or how we gather data or what are the, the things that we're paying attention to or how do we ask good questions to get good information. And when we talk about these things in relationship, you know, the way that you teach these is in progression, as if there's some sort of linear movement, right? From, okay, we're done data gathering, we've asked all of our questions, and now we're going to do this, right? That's not how this works, okay? Relationship is much more fluid than that. So as we talk about biblical discernment, this is all happening in process while we're getting to know one another, while we're asking good questions and dealing with particular problems and issues. And this will be something that you're constantly. Uh, addressing relative to issues of discernment. How do we think biblically about uh, what's going on in a person's life? And so just understand as we work from one thing to the next that these things are not sequential necessarily, okay? Yes, we have to listen first before we speak. That's certainly true. But somewhere caught in the middle, we have to understand what's going on in fullness. And sometimes as we get more information, that discernment changes. And so what we're after when we're trying to understand what's going on is we want to always pay attention to the caution to not speak before we hear and understand. But by the same token, we have to put information together to make sense of it, okay? If you think about it like a puzzle, one of the things that we enjoy doing as a family, particularly during this time of year, is we'll buy a puzzle and uh, we'll, we'll leave it out on a table. Sometimes when we go on vacation, we do the same thing. And then as people want to just put it together, do you guys do this kind of stuff? Or is it just us as weird something that we do. And, uh, and we put it together <clears throat> along and along. And you know that frustrating moment when you get sort of toward the end and you start recognizing like, I can't find that piece. Where's that piece, right? And then you start looking all over the place. It's important when you start putting a puzzle together that the picture becomes more and more clear. This is a part of how we do this in, in data gathering or listening. And then we start to put pieces of the puzzle together to make sense of what's going on in a person's life. I want to recall to your mind the illustration that I used last time with one of my sons as we were walking around the seminary, and he recognized that the moon in his terms was doing what? Following us. Now, I tried to correct that, and this is a part of what you have to do in relationship with one another, is as I'm hearing him, I'm discerning what's happening in his life at that moment, how he's putting information together and how he's understanding life. And as he's doing that, he's living life according to that interpretation. Now wrong interpretation. Okay. But he's living life based on that reality in his mind that's been contrived with the data that he can see. And so we do this all the time. You and I do this all the time, where we, we start to live life by some way that makes absolute sense to us. And we respond to the reality that we've contrived in our mind, but often it's very disconnected from biblical truth. And so the beauty of us sitting and listening to the word and hearing what God would say week after week after week is a constant correction to the ways in which we're pulled by the the, the information and the vain philosophies, as Paul would say in Colossians 2.8, from out there. And this it helps to ground us back to, a reality the way God sees it. So we want to learn to grow in our biblical discernment. In fact, this is exactly what God says makes us mature. is We understand as Bible-believing Christians that we're born into sin and that jades our heart, right? We're, we're marred in the inner man and we don't see everything correctly. In fact, we see reality wrongly. And God, as we've learned in Ephesians chapter one, has to awaken our hearts and as he awakens our hearts, now we begin to see reality from God's perspective, and in fact, we're empowered then by the Spirit to obey what God says, to respond appropriately. But as we live life, one of the things that we understand is we still live life, and we're in this flesh, or as Paul would say, in this body of death, and we're constantly wrestling with the issues of the flesh. And we often lack discernment as to what is biblical truth and what is cultural or contrived truth, and by that, we begin to build realities and we respond to those things. And the Bible helps to correct us. And this is a part of what we do in fellowship with one another. Kind and gracious interaction, knowing that all of us have been called to conform to, to the image of Christ. And with that in mind, we interact with one another in hopes that we can refine each other. And what it means for us is we have to grow in biblical discernment. We have to grow in understanding what the Scripture says allowing as Paul would say the the word of Christ to dwell in us richly Colossians chapter 3 so that the peace of Christ also in Colossians chapter 3 can rule our hearts now back to my illustration with with Will is I wasn't going to let him just continue to to believe that yes the moon is following us and that we're the center of the universe was that a true statement no it's not a true statement but I'm not going to absolutely like destroy his mentality, right? So, so, we have to. How do we wrestle with these things? Turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter six, starting verse one and two. And I'm going to mention several passages that are really important when we think about biblical discernment and what we're what we're called to do. Here, Galatians chapter six. This is one of the one and that the Bible describes. We're called to bear with one another's burdens. Uh, Galatians six one starting in verse 1, says this, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now, let me make a quick uh, point of clarification. When he says spiritual, I don't think here he's necessarily meaning those who are mature. It's always important to involve those who are more mature in the faith, but spiritual, I think he's just saying, those who have the spirit living in them, those whom God has made alive. I think this is telling all of us that we're all called to bear one another's burdens. Now in doing so, there's always a humility in the way in which we interact with one another, right? It's not me wanting you to conform to my way of thinking. It's me wanting you to conform to the scriptures. In the same way that I hope you desire that I conform to the scriptures. This is what Colossians one twenty eight teaches us. It's him we proclaim, admonishing every man, teaching every man, that we all may become complete in Christ. This is the goal. And so how do we do that? One of the ways that we do that is by bearing one another's burdens. As we bear one another's burdens, what we have to keep in mind is as we live life with one another, we're always hearing and seeing based on behavior, emotions, attitudes, actions, the things that we say. We're always seeing how we understand life at that given moment. And what happens is often as we discern what's happening in each other's lives, we see how sometimes we're disconnected from the reality of what God describes in the scripture and so what are we to do in moments like that what we're to do is and again this is in the in between the world of uh gathering information and making sure you don't speak before you hear okay that's the warning of proverbs but then also now we're called to give biblical instruction to bear each other's burdens we have to get engaged with one another right we have to live life with one another this is a part of what the scripture is telling us. So how do we do that? Let me give you some practicality and then we'll move into ways that we discern. So practicality is something like this. Jay Adams gave us really good distinctions in what he called sympathetic agreement and sympathetic disagreement. Let me just warn you, in our culture right now, uh, what we're doing is we're saying the most valuable thing in a relationship with people is uncont- unconditional empathy. Can I just warn you against that? Because essentially what that's saying is that whatever the person who's in trouble believes at that moment is most right. And anything that you say that might offend them in some way, shape, or form is the wrong thing to say. Can I just tell you that sometimes the truth is absolutely offensive. Sometimes the truth is very difficult. Now, I say that with this warning, is we are called, yes, to always speak the truth, but we are to speak it in love. So we have to tether those two things together. They can never be separated. For if you do, you find ditches on both sides of that road. And so when we talk about sympathetic agreement, get back to my illustration with Will. I'm agreeing about several things that he's observing. He's paying attention to God's creation. Okay? I'm being sympathetic with where he is as a child, trying to put information together. But I'm not going to let him live in some sort of fantasy world. Right? Right? And so there comes a point in time where I must sympathetically, what, disagree with the way he's interpreting the world at that moment. And this is the same way in which we should interact on a constant basis. is with kindness, with gentleness, as Galatians 6.1 tells us to, is that we, in sympathy or empathy, We give to the person because we love the person and we bear their burden. And how do we bear their burden? Sometimes it's by ministry of presence, but often when they're living life in a way that's disconnected to the realities of the truth of scripture, we have to disagree with them. And we have to speak the truth in love to them. And that takes biblical discernment. That takes biblical discernment. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. And we're going to see the beauty of maturity, how we grow in maturity. For The Bible actually tells us in Romans 15, 14 that what allows us the opportunity or those who should be engaging in admonition or um, encouragement with one another or telling the truth to one another are those who are grown up, those who are mature in the faith, those who are full of goodness and full of knowledge, as the Bible would describe, full of the Spirit. What does that look like? Hebrews five fourteen, I think, gives us a some sort of picture of what that looks like. So Hebrews five, starting verse um, fourteen. This is what the scripture. Um, no, I'm sorry. Hebrews. Uh, did I say that right? Hebrews five fourteen. Yes, um, I'm looking at six, and that wouldn't be uh, good. Okay, uh, verse eleven. Listen at 14, when we get to 14. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. 14, but solid food is for the mature. And the interesting thing here is now he gives a definition of what it means to be mature. So all the things that we're seeking out there that we think make us competent are actually often in opposition to what the Bible describes as us truly growing in maturity, what it means to be mature, or the aim of what it means to be human even. Uh, I would argue that what it means to be a healthy human being is that we're mature in the way God describes and defines maturity. It allows us to discern appropriately, and this is what he says. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to do what? To discern to discern good and evil. Now this is really important because we must discern good and evil from whose perspective? From God's perspective. And notice In the scriptures we learn, Paul is describing to Timothy that as the days grow colder and darker, what will happen is those evil men will call good evil and evil what? Good. Biblical maturity helps us to be anchored to biblical truth and allows us to discern from God's perspective what he says is good and what he says is evil. Now, how does that happen? It happens in relationship with one another as we live life, that we're able to discern that which is good and that which is evil from God's perspective. Now, how do we do that? We have to have theological categories, and this is where I'll begin. It's so important to me, and I'll explain why this is important, that when when we're interacting or thinking about life, whether it be your own personal life or the lives of other people, it's really important the basis from which you see life. It's important to have a, a worldview or a framework that's biblical in place that is the lens from which you see life unfold or else you'll understand the data wrongly or understand why life is happening you'll give reason that's not attributed to who God is and that sort of thing and you'll live life disconnected from the Lord and so when you're interacting with one another one of the ways that you do this is you start to listen for biblical patterns now what I call this okay and this is why you're constantly let me me back up What I describe here is so important because it it connects why it's so important that you are involved and engaged in the ministry of the church. It's so important that you're constantly hearing the word and being encouraged by the word and living life with each other so that you're growing in biblical discernment so that you know how to live life. Don't ever disconnect the things that are preached on a Sunday as if they're not intended to be lived out. Because the way in which you grow theologically, the way in which you grow spiritually is by the way in which you understand God from his perspective. And then out of that, we then live life, okay? Now, if we were to back up, what I describe this as is what I call the theological ideal. Now, don't get weirded out by that. All I simply mean is, what's God's intention for this thing or that thing? But why is, why is this creation matter? Well, God tells us why this creation matters. What is your job and your duty, no matter what it is that God has given you to do? What's your responsibility? Well, God has told us in his word what he wants from man, what he desires from man, how man should live, how man should interact, truths about who man is and what our responsibilities are, no matter what he's given us in life to do. Those things should dominate our thinking or else we're not going to discern Properly, okay. So as we're listening and hearing and gathering data, we have to have a perspective of what I call the theological ideal. What are we listening for? Patterns and themes in people's lives. And I don't make this technical. Okay? Life is not meant to be lived in that sort of way. I'm just giving you categories by which to think through. Okay. Listen for uh, biblical views of God. Now these could be right views of God, or these could be wrong views of God, and those are the parts at which we sympathetically agree. Right? When, when they were affirming the right views of God that they have about a certain situation, maybe it's an issue of suffering that a person's dealing with. We want to affirm those things. Uh, but what if they're explaining wrong views of God? Well, that's important because that's building a framework by which they're responding to whatever issue is going on in life. They're expecting things wrongly from God. Right? It's not uncommon to think about God as some sort of uh, genie to some degree. To think that, well, if I do this, this, and this, then God owes me something. Well, that's a wrong view of God. Biblically, it's a wrong view of suffering, and it's a wrong view of God, and, and even the purposes for which suffering happens according to the scriptures. And so, if I'm contriving this puzzle and I'm building this wrong reality and I'm living life according to those things, what am I going to find? Well, the Bible says that I'm going to find destruction at the end of that. I'm going to find heartache and difficulty and struggle, not certainly going to find peace because I'm misunderstanding who God is. So we want to hear what is a person by the way in which they respond, the way that they act, the way that they talk, how they're dealing with this situation of suffering or whatever. How do they view God? That's most important, right? The second thing is how are they viewing uh, people? How do they view themselves and how do they view others in relation to this particular issue that's going on? This is most important because Uh, The way in which we view ourselves is directly connected to what we think about God, right? So I say it like this. You guys ever had marriage problems? If you're married, um, it's pretty much 100%. For those of you who are planning to get married, you need to know how to do conflict biblically because it's going to happen. No amens, you guys? Like, it's going to happen, Okay. So here's the deal. When you think about uh, conflict that happens, the way in which we understand conflict, for example, uh, think about it like this. Every single, I call this a sociological problem, okay? So a problem between me and my spouse, and yes, that happens, where we disagree about something or we act sinful to one another, right? And so when there's a sociological problem, guess what's first and primary? Yes, we need to fix that, but guess what's primary? Every sociological problem, is dictated first by a theological problem. And see, we think about this, well, I'm not loving my spouse well. Okay, that's true. So you just need to learn to love her better and you're gonna have 10 ways that you can learn to communicate better and love your spouse better. What have you just done? You've taken the problem and divorced it from God and acted as though you can be empowered by your own self to now love her well. That's antithetical to what the Bible actually says. What does the Bible actually say? In order to learn to love her well, I first and foremost need to make sure that my heart is submitted to God and love Him well. Because how is it that we love? The Bible says the only way that you love well is that you understand the way in which God first loved you. And now, by understanding that love, what what becomes overwhelming to me is the way in which I show mercy, the way in which I show grace, the way in which I offer forgiveness, and the way in which I love her despite her. Do you understand? So this is a picture where we have to understand ourselves and understand others rightly, always in association primarily with who God is. And so we have to understand people, we have to understand how we think about people rightly, always in view of who God is. Because as George, as George Swinnick said, and I, I refer to often, is we can never fully underst- understand ourselves as people without first understanding God. You can't. He is the proper mirror by which we understand ourselves. A second, or a third, is a biblical view of trials and suffering. Uh, This world is full of suffering. What we've done, unfortunately, in the world in which you and I live in, is we've taken all manner of suffering and acted as though those things are abnormal, and that we are to do everything that we possibly can to get rid of abnormalities. I'll use one. Let's take uh, sadness, despair, depression, being downcast, Uh, as as the Bible describes it. And we we act in our current world, our cultural world, as if those things are always bad. And we've made that sadness the enemy. And we're willing to do anything that we possibly can to get rid of that sadness. Was that always the case, that that sadness is something that's wicked and evil? Not necessarily. If you take Jeremiah, for example, Jeremiah was responding with lamentation. Why? Because he was actually seeing from God's perspective The sin of of God's people. And as he viewed the sin of God's people in reality, what was a proper response to that? That he would be grieved in spirit to see that the people of God were divorcing themselves from God. They were running after idols. They were running after other gods, as the prophets would later say, it that they were whoring after other lovers. So Jeremiah was actually seeing that rightly, and what did it stir within him? A grief, a sorrow, a depth of sorrow that, yes, in a broken world, bad things happen. And for us to see those things as bad, when you lose a loved one, there's a legitimate loss. There ought to be legitimate grief. And oftentimes the grief is in direct correlation to the depth of relationship that you have with the individual. So that grief in our culture would be looked at as, well, you can have this for a short amount of time, no longer than two weeks. And if you have it more than two weeks, then, then something's abnormal about you. That's not biblical. It's not right according to the scriptures. And so we have to begin to assess our suffering, our difficulties, our problems, because they will come according to the scripture. And you can see James, and these are just um, a few surveys of how we think about suffering. James chapter 1. Consider it joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces Endurance. Right, so we're growing in this Romans chapter five verse one, talking about our peace with God because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he goes on to describe a type of hope in our suffering that does not put us to shame because it builds up character and builds up hope. Same thing in Second Corinthians chapter four, seven through eighteen, where he talks about us being jars of clay. We endure this light, momentary affliction, and he tells us to take heart in our suffering. In fact, when Jesus is praying in John seventeen. He doesn't pray that God remove the disciples out of the suffering. What does he pray? God sustain them through the suffering, and I'm praying this for them, but not only them, those who will come after them, talking about you and me. So we have to have a biblical view of trials, difficulties, suffering. This is really important as we approach the difficulties that you face and I face, we all face in life, and our tendency is to believe the things that we can see in front of our face rather than being anchored to the truth that God promises us about the way he uses suffering in our life. Another question I think is really important for biblical discernment is, what is it or who is it that the person is seeking to please? All of us are born to worship. We're born to give ourselves to something. You were made that way and you can't change that. You will give yourself to something. The question then becomes, what are you giving yourself to? And you know as well as I do that there are days, weeks, months, sometimes even years where we find ourselves giving ourselves to other things rather than God primarily. What is it that you seek? What is it that you're seeking to please? Who is it that you're seeking to please? What is it that you're seeking to achieve? Listen to First 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink. Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That everything that God has given you in your hands to do, there's a meaning and purpose. There ought to be a motivation behind it, a desire to exalt and please God, to give your life for him. Well, that makes sense, right? Because as believers now, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus is the master and we are his servant. And that we are to give ourselves fully to him in everything that we do, right? Whether by word or deed, Colossians 3.17, do it all in the name of the Lord. Did you know that there's nothing that you do that's non-spiritual? Nothing. There's not a thought that passes through your mind that's that's not value-laden. That's making statements about God and what you think about the world. And the question then becomes, is that accurate about who God really is and how he interacts with the world? And the beauty is that we don't have to guess about much of that because he's revealed himself to us in his word. And so this is a part of why we live life together is because we're often prone to wonder. We're often prone to drift. And can we just like all agree that that's a part of just who we are as fleshly people? And that we need to be constantly anchored. You know why it's so important that uh, the men who stand in this pulpit preach the truth of the word constantly? Because you it's not just suggested for your life. You need it. Why do you need it? It's because your life has a tendency, as we get involved in the affairs of the world, to drift away from the truth of who God is. And we need to be constantly reminded. And this is the beauty of how we discern well in maturity from God's perspective, and then we can sympathetically agree where appropriate, right? If somebody's going through suffering, and we can affirm and and anchor them into the promises of God that they're trying to to cling to, or we can disagree when necessary and and share with them the truth. That's admonition. You're laying the truth of God upon the mind of the person. What do they they believe gives them meaning or identity? We've been learning this in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen for those things in a person. What is it that they're pursuing? What do they give their time and effort to that they believe gives them meaning or some form <clears throat> of identity? I think about it like this. I'll use some examples in the, in the ways in which we talk in our culture today, and I'll, I'll get to some of these uh, on, on the back of the sheet. <clears throat> but think about the ways that we term people who drink a lot in our culture or, or people who are, who are overwhelmed with, with drug use. We use different language, don't we? We use certain labels to describe those things. I'll I'll, I'll use one of those, okay? Is we understand people who, who drink or who are consumed by alcohol. What do we call them in our culture? Okay, a little louder. It's okay. You can interact. We call them an alcoholic. Now, with that label, we have certain a basis by which we understand that person and what they struggle with. And most of the time, the narrative follows out that we think it's some sort of uh, disease that's made them susceptible, right, uh, or, or some sort of genetic disposition, which, by the way, has been disproven over and over again, but it still remains as sort of the cultural norm in how we think about alcoholism. And so you, you have to be in recovery because your identity is always as a What? as an alcoholic. Well, well, scripturally, the Bible says that whenever he frees us from something, 2 Corinthians 5 describes that we are a new creation. When, when we come to Christ, that our identity is no longer found as someone who's opposite of Christ or who's disconnected from Christ or who's outside of Christ. Our primary way of thinking about our identity is as someone who is in Christ and free from all of the bondage of the world. So when we talk about recovery, for example, I'm not always a recovering alcoholic, as if that's your primary identity, that you are now someone who has been freed from the bondage of sin. You see, how do we understand this and discern this appropriately? We don't describe it in terms of alcoholism. I understand we use that term because it's culturally appropriate, but understand the baggage that comes along with it. How does the Bible describe someone who we, our culture describes as an alcoholic that has meaning, right? It has meaning and baggage that comes with it, assuming that this person is not responsible for this, that they're sort of, you know, at the mercy of their own devices, that sort of thing. But how does the Bible describe someone who's given over to alcohol? The Bible doesn't use the term alcoholic. The Bible uses a specific term. What does the Bible call them? someone who's a drunkard. Now we're getting proper biblical discernment because with that, we see that this issue is a bondage of sin and that there's a particular person who can free us from that bondage of sin. And so now we we start to see the meaning of identity or how we understand our identity. Is it rooted the way in which God describes it ought to be rooted, either outside of Christ and now the ways that we act can be explained as fruit of the flesh consistently, Or we are in Christ, and now what we see come out of us as a fruit of our life is bearing fruit of the Spirit. Or even as we are believers, if we see fruit of the flesh come out, what needs to happen? Repentance. A calling back to the truth of who God is, and and now we walk faithful in repentance. So we need to understand what gives them meaning, what gives them purpose, what gives them identity, because the Bible is very specific about what ought to give us meaning, what makes us healthy human beings and what we're called to pursue and who we're called to please and what our life is actually for and that sort of thing. And then maybe a final, what are some of the greatest hindrances to biblical change? What are the things that, that keep a person from biblical change? And sometimes what we see, for example, is um, I've dealt with a lot of really difficult situations in the past in counseling, really, really tough situations. I've seen very difficult issues of abuse and that sort of thing. And there are times when I see the man who comes in who's been abusive, and he responds and he seems very broken and he's weeping and he's crying and he's really sad about what's happening. And as we continue to engage in what's going on, what what I begin to see is there's not a, a godly sorrow but a worldly sorrow. You see, a godly sorrow understands the consequences that come with it, and you're not trying to remove the consequences that, that God is enacting because of, because of our sin. You see, the man comes in, and he's broken, and he's, he's sad that he's gotten caught. He's sad that all these things have gone wrong. He's sad because now his children are frustrated with him, don't appreciate what he's doing. He's sad because maybe he spent some time in jail, or maybe he has some, um, some jail time that he's facing or something like that. He just wants those consequences to go away. That's worldly sorrow. Well, he's sorrowful, no question about it. He's ashamed. But he just wants things to go back to normal. He's not willing to change himself. And See, what we have to do is to understand some of the greatest hindrances that keep people from biblical change. We have to pay attention to those and try to help them in any way that we can to, to overcome those things to be able to endure what God might be doing in them. Now let's get to this in the last few minutes that we have. And I'm, again, I'm not going to rush. We're, we're not going to get through everything. You'll have this and, and we'll revisit it maybe the next time that, that, um, that I get to be with you. So uh, I, I want us to start putting people in biblical categories. We have <laughs> endless studies in sociology and psychology where we try to label people. We try to understand them categorically. We try to put their, their consistent behaviors together, or consistent desires and motivations. I mean, motivational theory is, is a booming business in how we try to understand what motivates people, right? Uh, this is Marketing 101, understanding what motivates people. And you have a good taste of that during this time of year, don't you? Uh, because you're bombarded with all of these theories of motivation and they're trying to lure and entice you in some way to be motivated that you need that thing, whatever that thing is, right? So we have to start to understand people from a biblical perspective. Now, one of the the criticisms that is given of biblical counseling is something like this. Well, all you guys do is you just bash people. You just want to admonish people. Well, um, let me just tell you this, that the Bible is not only a hammer and not every problem is a nail, okay? And so the Bible is not intended to just bash people. That's not the goal. We have to understand and discern who a person is, and that helps us to know how we respond appropriately. Let's take Jesus, for example. Okay, take Jesus. Did Jesus respond to every person the same? I dare say no. Think about, in contrast, the way in which Jesus responded to Pharisees and Sadducees. In fact, the, the first sermon that he preaches in Matthew chapter 5 that, that we know publicly is the Sermon on the Mount, and, and he starts with the Beatitudes, this is what it means to live a blessed life. And, and what he's doing, as we know, where he moves into the sermon after the Beatitudes is he's describing, this is what a blessed life means, and you've heard it said like this, from these guys over here, but I say to you. You see, what he's doing is he's sympathetically disagreeing with the picture that the Pharisees had painted about how you please God and how you live a life that was blessed. You see, the way in which Jesus described them sometimes was as a brood of vipers. And he saw the way that they were doing dealings in the temple and he threw tables because he was zealous for the name of God. But then you see Jesus, very popular in a crowd, and a woman in that culture who had no business ever coming near a teacher And Jesus stops the whole montage and he pauses and he says, who who touched me? Or they bring a woman who's been caught in adultery to Jesus and he stops everything and he responds with compassion and grace and mercy to her. See, Jesus responded appropriately for the need of the moment. And that's something that we have to learn to do. It is in our culture, we don't respond with wisdom. We respond with systems. And we, we, we like systems that give us, well, tell me when this problem happens, tell me a step one, two, three, four, and five. Well, that works well in recipes. It doesn't work well in life. Okay? It works well in, you know, do-it-yourself projects from Home Depot. It doesn't work well in life. And so we have to learn how to appropriately deal with people. Turn in your Bible to uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 5. And again, we're talking here about biblical discernment. How do we discern well? How do we discern well? You have to start asking yourself this question constantly and ask this about you and ask this about others as well. What biblical category best describes this person? What biblical category best describes this person? Because it's by that wisdom that you'll know how to respond appropriately. You'll know how to give biblical truth appropriately to that person when you know what type of person they are, how they're presenting themselves. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, start in verse 12 and get down to verse uh, 14. This is what Paul the Apostle says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. And this is the area where Paul goes into very basic things. So just outside of this, let me just recommend to you, if you feel like you're off kilter and things are sort of disordered in your life, it's, it's a good idea to come to a place like 1 Thessalonians 5 and just swim in it for like a month and just week after week, try to obey the, the little things that he's telling us to do here, right? Live in peace with one another. Strive to do that. Strive to do that today, right? And then he goes on, verse 15, don't repay evil for evil. When somebody commits evil against you, God's not saying that that evil wasn't real. He's saying it's real. But he's just telling you, don't repay evil for evil because that doesn't accomplish what God intends. So don't repay evil for evil. The vengeance, bitterness that rises up in your heart. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. And then he says, for this is God's will for your life. So we, we wander about all the time wondering, God, What do you have for me? Start there. Start with the things that you know. I say this all the time. If I could just do half of the things that I know, I'd be a much better servant of Jesus. So start with the things that you know. Go back to some of the basics and just try this week to obey two of those things. And next week, try to obey some more of those things. Just be obedient to what God says. Okay, back to 1 Thessalonians 5.14. This is what he says. We urge you, brethren admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. You see what you see here are three categories of people. And this is not exhaustive, nor I would argue comprehensive, uh, but this gives three basic categories. And we see other types of categories in the scripture, someplace like Psalm 42, my soul, my soul, why are you downcast within me? Right? We see different types of people expressed or different ways that people express themselves, and we, we learn how to deal with those problems. But this is a really good sort of summation of, of three basic categories. And what are the categories? Let me start here. Try to understand this person biblically. The first thing is, is a person saved? Do they know the Lord? But there can be people who are in the church who come quite often who do not know the Lord. That's one of the reasons the Lord has given us church discipline is is to be able to vet that out under the authority of the church. If someone's unwilling to repent of sin consistently, it begins to bear the witness and testimony uh, that they're not a believer. It doesn't mean that you're not a believer if you sin, because we sin, but we're called to repentance. If you're constantly digging your heels in and not willing to repent, that causes a question of testimony as to whether or not your heart has truly been uh, made alive. And so is this person saved or unsaved? I'm going to give different counsel to someone who's saved or who's not saved. Because if someone is is not saved, for me to give them biblical commands, for me to say rejoice always, for me to say pray without ceasing, for me to say don't repay evil for evil, what am I asking them to do? I'm asking them to do the commands of God in their own what? Strength. And all, all that I'm doing is creating a Pharisee where God says that anything that's not done with faith is sin. So I'm actually asking them to sin against the Lord because they're not doing whatever it is they've been called to do by faith. So I'm actually hardening their heart. So I'm not going to give them that type of counsel. I'm going to evangelize them. I'm going to talk to them about their greatest needs and how their life is is uh, is... A wake of destruction constantly, and how the Bible describes it, those experiences are true, and why they keep happening because you don't have peace in your life. I'm going to talk about the gospel of Jesus and how he meets all of those needs specifically. Another question that I want to know is Is this person spiritually mature or not? Now, how do I gauge that? The way that I gauge that is um, Do they see life from God's perspective? Do they understand that which is good and that which is evil from God's perspective? And this is most critical. Are they mature? Now, I'm not going to command different things for them, but the way in which I walk with them will be different. Right? Think about with your children, right? Uh, The rules in my house are the same for every child. But I have an 18-year-old and 6-year-olds. The way that I deal with them is often very different. Sometimes in terms of teaching uh, the six-year-olds because maybe they're ignorant about some of the, the responsibilities that they have, I deal with them differently than the older because the older ones know what is expected, and so they're held into account. It's different the way that you deal with those who are spiritually immature and those who are, who are not. Sometimes you have to teach because of ignorance, and sometimes you have to call to repentance because they are Willfully disobeying what God says. So I want to know that. And remember, if God's will is sanctification, I'm going to help both of those, immature and mature, to grow in sanctification. Listen, let me just say this really quickly. It is a misnomer to think that those who are mature in Christ never have problems. Why do you think it is that the Apostle Paul longed for the glorious appearing of Christ? Because he knew himself. He didn't have to look at all the difficulties of other people's lives. He knew himself and he knew how much he treasured Christ and how he awaited for the curse of sin to be eradicated once and for all in his life. He longed for the glorious appearing of Christ where he would come back, Revelation 21 5, and make all things new. We long for that. So we need to discern, is this person mature in the faith or are they not? Because I'm probably going to deal with them in in a little bit different way as I try to help them to grow in wisdom and maturity. And the last category I want to give in maybe the next two minutes is, is this person unruly, faint-hearted, or weak? And I get those categories from here in 1 Thessalonians five. 14. And notice, again, this is not comprehensive. It's just giving basic categories. If a person is unruly, that word just means um, that they're rebellious. They know the truth and they're, they're choosing not to do it outright. Okay, uh, They're choosing not to do it. And how does the Bible tell us to respond to someone like that? With an admonishment. That, that word biblically means confrontation. It means to lay the truth of God upon their mind. You go and tell them the ways in which they're erring. It's much more forceful. It's much more uh, in-your-face kind of thing, okay? But still doing it in love, as the Bible describes. But notice the distinction with someone who's faint-hearted. This is somebody who I would describe as being weary and well-doing. They're they're tired, or maybe maybe they're not fully mature in the things of God. And what does the Bible tell us to do? Admonish those? No, that would be a a wrong appropriation. It would be wrong discernment to now take the Bible and, and to confront them with some issue what does the bible tell us to do for those who are faint-hearted and sometimes these things look similar so you have to get to know the person to understand what's going on someone who's faint-hearted what does the bible tell us to do encourage not to admonish now do i want to encourage the unruly person no because what am i doing i'm actually affirming his foolishness So there's a distinction, and this is where it takes biblical discernment, to know how do I respond in a way that's pleasing to Christ for every single situation. This is why there's not a step and stage in the way in which we deal with each other. It's biblical wisdom applied to whatever the need of the moment is. And then the final thing is the issue of weakness. When someone is weak, this just means someone who's immature, someone who who lacks knowledge to some degree. And the, the Bible tells us to help them. The idea is, think about it like this, that you guys have, who, who've had children, maybe some of you have toddlers now and they're, they're learning from crawling into walking. And, and notice it's a process. It's not like one day they're like, dude, I'm gonna walk today and just check this out, right? Uh, they sort of start standing up and you can tell their muscles are developing. They're weak. And they sort of go from knee to knee or from couch to couch or from one stable piece of furniture to the next. And they're sort of like wobbly. And you're like, God, I'm glad that they have soft heads because they're like, they're not gonna make it, right? Uh, And they're wobbling all over and they're looking for something stable to hang on to. That's weakness. And what do they need? Help, they need a crutch. They need something that's gonna help them to walk stably so that they can be strengthened. And then before long, they're not, they're not wobbling all over the place. Because they've been strengthened. Their muscles and their legs are stronger, they can walk. This is the same picture. When someone is weak, they 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 don't need you admonishing them. They they don't even need at this moment necessarily encouragement. What they need is somebody who will walk alongside them, and as they live life experientially, and they stumble back and forth and their life seem disordered, what do they need? They need somebody who's strong who will constantly help them interpret the daily ongoings of their life in a way that's stable and sturdy, connected to the word, until they themselves become strong. Not that they're dependent upon you. My goodness, they need to be dependent upon Christ. But you're a medium to help them. You you help them walk stable so that they can be strong. So this is a part of how we think about biblical discernment. We'll have to leave it here and maybe pick it up next time. Let me pray for us, and then we will um, transition into worship. Father, we're so grateful for your kindness, your love, your grace, and your mercy toward us. You are a kind God and a good God. I pray, God, that you help us to keep that in mind. And Lord, as we approach this idea of discernment and the way we interact with one another, uh, may it be said of us that we first love and that we are humble with one another as we speak the truth in a way that we hope pleases you, and encourages one another in Christ's name. Amen.